I've only been walking since I was born, but I can still manage to stumble. <laughs> is this is this your Bernard? Is this your stuff? There you go. Okay, Paul, thanks. <laughs> Say it again. He did well. That's good. We're we're brothers in stumbling. I love you, Mike. I hope you guys do too. I have enjoyed the connections, the people we've been meeting with, the people we anticipate meeting with throughout this week. Great conversations, great opportunities to learn and grow, to know Jesus better, and to learn how we could go back home and share him better with others around us. So anyway, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Oh, Father, there's so much in this text, and our minds are so short-sighted, and our time is so limited. Would your Holy Spirit please speak to us through the text today that what we can explore will give maximum benefit to each of our hearts. We ask this evening that you would once again fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he would take the crumbs that are offered and that he would multiply them and that everybody here would hear something that would speak to his or her condition and circumstance so that each one would have the dramatic affirmation that you love them. And we thank you for this, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, we've been talking about maturing in Christ and how maturing in Christ is linked to mission. 
And there's a level of intimacy with God that eludes us until having come to Christ, we begin to pass on the good news to others. Ministry is pointing people to Jesus. It often involves suffering to some degree as we bear burdens for others and also as we have pruned the incongruencies in our own life in relationship to Christ. We're warned about potential detractors. We taught that last night. And much can derail ministry. Uh, they're in evidence by their lack of fruit, these people. Some are not fruitful because nobody ever discipled them, and they remain immature. Some are not fruitful because they have no real vitality of faith. They are wheat among the tares. Um, they are autumn trees without fruit. And it seems to me if we have um, boundaries in our ministry that would prevent people who have not borne fruit to be in positions of leadership, we would be encouraging more fruitful activity in the body of Christ. We're not making a judgment. If a person hasn't borne fruit, they may very well be a sincere-hearted Christian who just has never been mentored. We want to give room for that, but we want to keep the person who doesn't want anybody mentored because they're doing uh, inappropriate things in the body of Christ, gravitating towards leadership but with no real substance of faith. Jesus speaks of various examples of fruitfulness in Matthew 13 in the parables of the soil. Some of the seed fell by the road, it got trampled on. Some of the seed fell among shallow soil, it took root quick, but when the heat of the day came, it burned out. And there was the seed that fell among the weeds, and it never bore fruit, got choked out. And then there's the fruitful. The seed that fell among good soil, and it bore fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. The question isn't, how much fruit has you, have you borne? Some more, some less. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we, we said at Wheaton one time we were going to do a survey of graduates uh, from Wheaton College and ask, so um, how many of you have led people to Christ? We were trying to find out from the people that had gone out, did we prepare them to go and fruitfully live their lives? And then we would say, could, could you let us know maybe how many people you have led to Christ? And we knew when we got the one that came back that said, you know, several million, that was probably Billy Graham's response to the survey. We're not all Billy Graham's, but we should all have some degree of fruit. And that's what it says when the seed falls among the good soil. While there may be external threats to fruit bearing, those wolves among the sheep and sheep's clothing, internal matters can also truncate growth. And Paul addresses some of these here now in Colossians chapter 3. He says at the beginning of the chapter, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We were born to grow, and some of the problems might be that we're not engaged in spiritual disciplines essential to grow. There may be some laziness on our part, uh, some lack of intensity and deliberateness about our faith. We need to engage in those spiritual disciplines that are essential to growth, and so I want to go over some of these. Number one, I think that we need to be people who make a commitment to personally study Scripture. It should be part of our life. Um, I, I, there was a guy in college um, that I, I played football with him, and I had a chance to share the four spiritual laws with him. He didn't, he didn't respond to the gospel. But he put that four laws in his wallet. You have to take it by faith now, but he and I both had tryouts with the professional football 
uh, uh, teams. We had a tryout with the Rams and a tryout with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the CFL. He made the first cut with the Rams. I got cut right away. He, uh, he got cut in the second cut. With the Rough Riders, I made the first cut, but he got, uh, I got cut in the second cut. He got cut in the first cut. For me, I was just seeing if it was possible. And the problem I could see clearly was that these coaches just lacked good judgment. You know, they, they, <laughs> thought, they thought I was too small, too slow, and not good enough. But what did they know, you know? For me, actually, I was in seminary. I thought, hey, if this happens, that's good. I could probably do some ministry in that area. That's fine. But my, my, my real vision was for serving Christ. But Mike, it was everything. His whole life was wrapped up in this. Well, I didn't see him after the Saskatchewan Rough Rider tryout. And, and until about nine months later, I saw him. And he said, Jerry, I'm a Christian now. I said, wow, what happened, Mike? He said, I was looking through my wallet. I was so discouraged when I didn't make it in the pros. And I found this little booklet, and he pulled out that four spiritual law booklet. And he said, I read through it, and I prayed the prayer. I didn't even need to be there. I prayed the prayer. And I saw at the end it said, grow. Go to God daily in prayer. Read your Bible. Obey. Witness. So I started reading my Bible. And then I came to Deuteronomy 17, and it said, when the king is established, he should write out for himself a copy of the Bible and keep it by his throne to inform his judgments. So I've been copying the Bible ever since then. I go, Mike, how far are you? He says, I'm in 1 Samuel. I said, Mike, we have printing now. <laughs> you don't need to do that. But don't you appreciate the intensity with which that guy approached Right away, coming to faith. If it meant copying the Bible, he was going to do it. Whatever. It was so much fun to see him grow. He and his wife both and whatnot. But anyway, this idea of going to the Bible, going to the Scriptures. If you go to the Scriptures, you find out in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's profitable to teach us. I don't know about you, but every day I am devastated by how complex the world is and how little I know about it. And I don't know how we make it through the labyrinth if we don't have instruction and sensitivity to instruction that can take us beyond our own capacity to know. It teaches us. Not only that, it reproves us. I don't like the reproofs of Scripture, but I need them. It takes the scalpel of the scripture and cuts away those areas in our life that are inappropriate. Uh, how many of you, if you blew your nose in the morning before you left home and didn't check the mirror one last time, and you had a booger hanging out of your nose, and everybody who looked at you sort of went, a couple hours into your morning, you have to go to the bathroom, you go into the public washroom, and you look in the mirror and you go, how long has that thing been hanging there? Do you want to hear about it right away? Or do you want to go through your day with the booger hanging out? Well, how about soul boogers? How about those flaws of character? That sometimes you're only going to get pointed out for you in the mirror of Scripture as it reproves us. And then it says also not only does the Scriptures do the scriptures reprove us? They correct us. The word for correct is epinorthos. Um, you have the word orthos. We, we, we get all kinds of interesting words from it. 
um, an orthodontist straightens your teeth. An orthopedist straightens your broken bones. Orthodoxy is straight or correct doctrine. Epinorthos is learning how to stand up straight again after we see the flaws that have bent us over. It corrects us. It guides us. It nurtures us. And then lastly, of course, it says the scriptures, train us in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When I was in college, I, I remember after my freshman football season, I went up to the gym to work out, and the wrestling coach was there. And he said to me, how much do you weigh? I told him my weight, and he said, our wrestler at that weight broke his leg last week. How'd you like to wrestle for us? And I'm thinking to myself, that's not a very good recruiting tool. <laughs> I didn't know anything about wrestling. And I told the coach that, but I was a freshman and very impressionable. And he said, oh, you're going to just be a natural. I can see it in you right away. And he just flatters me. And all of a sudden, I said, oh, okay, coach, I'll wrestle. When's the first match? He said, in about 45 minutes. <laughs> the first match I ever wrestled, ever saw in college, I'm wrestling in it. I didn't know anything about it. And the guy I'm pitted across from, his name was Sam Allen. He was the district champ the year before. He had a unique style all of his own. I think it was called Early Boston Strangler. <laughs> but I thought I'd do okay. You know, I went out on the mat. Referee blows a whistle, and I set a school record that night. 17 seconds after the match started. I'm counting knot holes on the roof of the gym. Yeah, you laugh about it. Why did I do so poorly? I wasn't trained. We got churches that are compromising to the encroachments of secularization constantly, and they're caving. We've got Christians who are falling apart, and they're caving. Why? Because they're not trained. They're not in the scriptures. We need to be in the scriptures, and we can be tempted away from them, even for good reasons. I remember when I was a pastor, you'd have a week sometimes, and it would go like this, where you'd have... Three unexpected deaths in the congregation, which meant three funerals, three families to comfort. You'd have your Sunday sermon you had to prepare, and oh yeah, there was that wedding you had Saturday afternoon. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to get a quiet time in here or not. So I think I'll just count my sermon prep as my quiet time. You could be a professor at a Christian college, and you could be protect, uh, preparing your lesson plans. You could say, it's been a busy week, a lot of papers to grade, extra faculty meetings to go to, students to mentor. I think I'll count my lecture prep as my quiet time. I can remember even in seminary, there might be times. I'd read my Bible several times before I went to seminary, but there could be times when you could say, it's been a heavy load this week, I'll just count the study of the scriptures I'm using to write this paper. And before you know it, the practice of coming to the text for your own soul atrophies. And somehow something in you starts dragging. About 25 years ago, our oldest son, Jeremy, came home from college. And, and, and every morning when I got up to get coffee for Claudia, I would see him already at the kitchen table reading his Bible every morning. And I thought, he, he's, he's got a faithfulness to practice that sort of atrophied a bit in my life. And I said, Lord, help me to be like him. And I have not, since that day, missed a quiet time. 25 years I haven't missed. At first, you start out slow. You've got to make sure you do it. 
Next day, do it again. Put one foot in front of the other. Before you know it, it becomes a habit. And before you know it, that habit becomes part of your character. And before you know it, you can't let go of it. This is your lifeline. And so if we're going to put on Christ, and if we're going to uh, be raised up with him and keep seeking the things above, being in the scriptures is really important. And you know, this is the interesting thing. You can read through the Bible from cover to cover in 80 hours. You can read through the Bible from cover to cover 13 minutes a day. That's less than the commercial time of one hour of television. There's no reason why everybody can't get through the word each year and keep undergirding our life with the wisdom of God's word. Uh, another area of spiritual discipline that'll keep us setting our minds on things above is, is obedience to the text that we're reading. Um, it was uh, C.S. Lewis who said he thought that obedience was a splint God places on the broken life that it might mend. Um, another uh, interesting thing is uh, George MacDonald, the Scottish author who influenced C.S. Lewis, said, obedience is an opener of eyes. Uh, wh why does God hire us with all the desires we have? You know, you can be a young person, and a, uh, you're an adult, but you're not married yet, and you're kind of horny. And you're saying, why does the Bible say you can't have sex yet? Obedience is the opener of eyes. You do what the Bible says, and all of a sudden, it starts to become clear why he says that. Why promiscuity is not good. Why taking advantage of another person and using them for your own self-gratification puts you in a bad way where your own soul begins to atrophy, and you're not thinking of the welfare of others anymore. Obedience is the opener of eyes. You don't understand, obey, and the understanding will come shortly after. It's an antidote to what Aristotle called acrasia or acrasia. If I do something bad, I can't live with myself unless I change my behavior. If I don't change my behavior, the only way I can live with myself is to rationalize the bad behavior. And the rationalization, Aristotle called it acrasia or acrasia. Acrasia is the Greek word for command. I lose command of my moral life. An antidote. To see clearly again, obedience, obedience. Not only that, obedience, uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about it. He writes about it as if it's a fence. And we see the scriptures will say, don't do something. I, I always think that it's always good to rephrase the Ten Commandments as positives. The command, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. What's God saying there? Thou shalt have me. And if you go through each of the commands and put it in positive, look at the brilliance it's setting forth for us. You get to the last command, what is it? Thou shalt not covet. What does that say? Thou shalt be content. If I'm not coveting and if I'm content in God, I'm probably less likely to drift. So anyway, the commands are like a fence. And we go and put our nose up against the fence and why wonder, why can't I get there? Why can't I go outside the fence instead of turning our back to the fence and see the playground that God's defined for us within the fence? Okay, so obedience is huge. Uh, it's also a means to increase faith. Jesus was asked in Luke 17, 5 by the disciples, Lord, increase our faith. When you see a question asked of Jesus like that, I don't know about you, but I focus on what's following. 
And he tells them this funny thing. You know, he says, you know, if you have the faith to move mountains, you know, you could say this mountain, you know, uh, go in the sea, or you could say to a tree, you know, like he did with the fig tree or whatever. I don't, I don't remember the disciples' mountain-moving ministry going on. He had something deeper to say. And so he says, this is his answer to, Lord, increase our faith. Which of you, if you had a slave, and the slave had been working all day, when the slave came in, you'd say to him, oh, let me fix you dinner. No, his work's not done. Get your work done, fix me dinner, and then you can go eat. And he, that's his answer to the question, Lord, increase our faith. What's he saying? If you're called to obey, in obedience, you begin to find your faith grow. It's like, again, the opener of eyes. It's a strange illustration, but it's moving us towards the fact that obedience increases faith. And then, and then I, this is the one I've always loved. I, I believe, he, sa he says in four times in the upper room, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obedience is a testimony to the level of your love for God. If you drift, there's something waning in your love. So anyway, in the, in my absolute favor is this. I, I really believe this, people. We are pea brains. We don't know much. And think of all that there is out there to know. And yet, God has spoken to us in his word. And he's given us some things. Yeah, it's not much, you know, if, if you think of all the books that are in the world and he's given us this thin little book. I don't have to worry about how small it is because I'm not good at obeying everything that's in that one, that I need more. But the bottom line is he gave us this book and he says to obey. He is omniscient and all-knowing and I'm a pea brain. Every act of obedience leads me into the realm of the benefits of omniscience. I don't know and understand. I obey him. I live in the benefits of the vastness of his wisdom and grace. So we obey. Next one is prayer. Prayer is another one of the disciplines that enables me to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. How does it work? It's a complex topic, prayer. As I, there's a lot I just don't understand, especially about unanswered prayers. There are people I have prayed for for decades. They haven't come to Christ yet. There are people I've prayed for for a short period of time, and they have. I think God wants us praying for people in our world. I think we, we, we go around bellyache about things that are going on in the world, but we don't pray about it so much. We need to be praying about these things. But there's a lot I don't understand. Uh, and, and maybe as we pray, perhaps God wants us to know his heart for others. It says in the Bible, Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. He cares for the world. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed even for unbelievers. I, I, I remember years ago, I used to work at a church in Wheaton, Illinois, called College Church in Wheaton. And there was a family in that church, the Geezer family, and, and Mrs. Geezer died. Whenever Billy Graham would come to Wheaton, he would stay with the Geezers. So he came to preach Mrs. Geezer's funeral. And the senior pastor at the church at that time was a guy named Kent Hughes. And, and they had a dinner at the Geezer's home before the funeral where Billy Graham was going to give uh, the, the memory of this woman and Kent was going to preach the uh, eulogy. 
And, and they were in this dinner, and Kent was sitting over here. Graham was over there. He hadn't met him. And Kent gets up. He's nervous. I mean, I don't know about how you would feel if you were preaching a sermon before Billy Graham. You know, kind of, uh, and he gets up to go to his car, and Billy Graham gets up when he sees him, and he walks over to the door, and he says, you're Kent Hughes, aren't you? He says, yeah, yeah, I, I am. Shook his hand, and he said, are you, are you a little bit nervous? Are you going over to your office to look over your notes? And Kent said, yeah, I am. He said, can I go with you? I'm a bit nervous, too. They get in the car, and while they're driving over there, Billy Graham says, you know, I remember when you were a youth pastor in Southern California. So-and-so told me about you, and I started praying for you back then. Now, how would you feel if Billy Graham had come up to you and said, you know, I've been praying for you for years. I'd say, well, that's pretty good. I got one better for you. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for you. You are on his heart and on his mind, and he is praying for you. And not only that, he wants you to partner with him in praying for other people in the world. And we get to do that. It's kind of cool. You got the things in prayer, we've all heard them adoration, worship. You've got confession, keep short accounts with God. Don't let the sins build up in your heart. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't become bitter. Um, you've got thanksgiving. Every day we should have plenty to thank God for. If we don't start thanking God for all the good that's going on in our life, my guess is our focus will be directed towards any kind of inconvenience we experience. It'll make us grumpy. And then lastly, supplication. Pray for other people. Break out of the dungeon of yourself. Pray for people in your world. And then the best thing I've ever read on prayer, this is my very limited experience, but let me read it to you. This is by George MacDonald. He was a Scottish author. He, he died when Lewis was about six years old, but he, Lewis said he was his unofficial teacher. He said, I never wrote a book where I didn't quote from this guy. And here's what MacDonald said. If God is so good as you represent him, and if he knows all that we need and better far than we do ourselves, why should it be necessary to ask him for anything? I answer, what if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all of our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help to drive us to God? Hunger may drive the runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is that one need of the soul beyond all other need, and prayer is the beginning of that communion. And some need is the motive of that prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with God, our eternal need. The biggest reason why we pray is that we could stay in oral communication with the God who loves us and wants relationship with us. It's overwhelming to me. So prayer is another one of the spiritual disciplines. I, I, I would say also uh, attending church, being involved in a fellowship of believers where we could, one, worship corporately. Uh, uh, it was A.W. Tozer who said, uh, tuning our heart, if you want to tune 100 pianos, you don't take the second one and tune it to the first and the third one to the second and the fourth one to the third and the fifth one to the fourth, and you tune all 100 pianos, that way you'll have organized discord. You want to tune 100 pianos, you tune them all to one fork. You come to worship and we're all tuning our hearts to a common fork. 
And not only that, do we need corporate worship, we need times in our churches where we have intimate fellowship with some. The secrets you can't talk about, they control you. You need people, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that you can let your guard down with, be open and honest with, and you can grow. So that's important, too. It's another spiritual discipline that helps us to keep seeking the things above and setting our minds on the things above. Another one is witness. I'll say a couple more things about that later, but right now, let, let, let me just share with you, even the idea of prayer. Um, I'm pretty extroverted, you know, and I like people. I, I love novels. I love the fact that the novelist gives us a narrative thread to follow, and we get to do that, and we come to the end of the novel. It's interesting. You're going to be a writer. Keep that in mind. But then also, um, people are more interesting than a narrative thread. People are a fabric of threads. And in relationship, you could follow this thread for a while and follow this thread as you talk with them and so on. It's fascinating to me. And, and so consequently, um, as we begin to share Christ with people, we encounter these narrative threads. I like that. I'm extroverted. I like that. But even if you're introverted, you begin with prayer and you pray for a particular person. And I found it works like this. There was a guy, it was a restaurant in Santa Barbara when we used to live there. And I would go that, I had working lunches four days a week, and I'd go to the same restaurant. You get tired of the food, but you're not there for the food. You got bigger fish to fry. And the guy who was the owner of the restaurant, his name was Brad. And every day I was there, I made sure I had some face-to-face -face with Brad. Hey, Brad, how are you? Hey, Brad, did you catch the game last night? Hey, Brad, I really like the mahi-mahi sandwich. I hope you keep it on the menu. Hey, Brad, how's business? Three weeks passed, and the third week I said, you know what, Brad, I pray for you every day. I've never said that to somebody and had them say back to me, well, would you stop it? <laughs> Most people are happy somebody's praying for them. Next three weeks, small talk every time I saw him, and I saw him 12 times over those three weeks. And after three weeks, I said, you know what, Brad, I pray for you every day. And he said, you said that to me before, but I didn't really believe you. But you must really be doing it. And I said, I, I am, Brad. I don't miss. He said, would you pray for my boys, too? And I wrote down the names of his boys. I remember the night one of my kids came home from youth group and said, Dad, one of Brad's kids came to youth group tonight and gave his heart to Jesus. It went on like that for months. You know, sometimes you want to say you saw millions of people come to Jesus and stuff, but I think it's the persistence and the continuing of this. Uh, there was a waitress who came to Christ in that restaurant, and I was there with my best friend one day, and he had a, an acquaintance who was sitting in another booth by himself. We called that guy over to eat with us. He came to faith that morning. But there came a day where Brad came walking up to me. It was a sports bar and grill. He was a former NFL guy. And he comes up and he says, Jerry, I need to talk to you after lunch. So I changed my appointments for the afternoon, and we went down to a coffee shop, and he poured out his heart to me. And it was just all kinds of sad stories and things that were making their encroachment in his life and burdening his heart. He's got tears in his eyes. And after about three hours, I said, Brad, I think you need Jesus. I shared the gospel in a few minutes, and he said, I think I need Jesus too, but I don't want to give him my life like it is right now. I think I want to fix it first, and I'll give it to him. I said, that's not the way it's usually done, Brad. Usually we invite him in and he begins to work inside out. 
But you try it your way, and if it doesn't work, then let me know. So I went back to every three weeks telling him I was praying for him. Five months later, I get a call at my office. Jerry, my way is not working. Can I come see you? And he came to my office, and I led Brad to Jesus. I never saw anybody use more Kleenex than that former NFL guy coming to faith. We were able to start follow-up. His restaurant eventually closed down, and he moved back to Michigan, where he was from. And you know, about eight years ago, he dropped dead of a heart attack. And one day, I'm going to introduce you to him, because this stuff matters, and it matters forever. And this is all part of it. And then one more thing about spiritual practices that keep our minds set on things above is giving. Learning to be givers. I was teaching a premarital class one time, and we had a couple that wanted to know if they could take it. They weren't Christians, but they said, we want to know if we could just take this premarital class. I said, sure, you're more than welcome. I was hoping maybe I could lead them to Christ during the class. Well, we had a section on finance. And I always said, you know, you, you, you want to give 10%, you want to save 10%, and you want, you know, that you got as a, as a barrier at home, and you want to put 10% in retirement, live on 70% was the way I usually advise them. It's probably wrong. If you're a banker here, you could say, boy, Jerry, you gave bad advice to all those people. <laughs> so, <laughs> But this one couple came up to me that were not Christians, and they said, well, we understand you Christians have that tithe thing, give 10% away and all that stuff. We're not Christians. We don't feel the obligation to do that. I said, you have to do that. Why? We're not Christians. I said, here's why. If you want a good marriage, you can't afford to cultivate hoarding self-interest. God wants to build in us magnanimity. We need to learn to give. And maybe you start with 10% and go from there. But the thing is, we need to be people who are cultivating magnanimity. So that we're setting our minds on the things above, not on the things below. So anyway, with all that in mind, an 803, how late do we go to? Huh? Is it okay to keep going? I, I, I don't want to do more than I should. And I was, anyway. Huh? Five more minutes? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over this. I want to get to a couple of last stories, then, okay? Because you got the stuff in here. It talks about all the garbage in that can come inside that could dissuade us. Our lives need to be hidden with Christ. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We're broken people, and the encroachments of our brokenness can begin to infect our whole life. And they will certainly distract us from being Christ's ministers in the world, and it will diminish our becoming intimate with him. And, and it says these practices basically amount to idolatry. We are broken, and I think we often will engage in what I call anesthetizing behaviors. These are behaviors where rather than turning to Christ to heal what's broken in us, we try to do it ourselves. Sin is man playing God of his own life, and then trying to solve our brokenness just compounds our sin. You got all these obvious anesthetizing behaviors, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, eating disorders, 
You've got workaholism and so on. We could count so many different things that we do that we rush to to try and fix, not fix actually, but just deaden the pain of our brokenness. Only Christ can heal us in these particular places. And, 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 and here, the, Paul calls these things idolatry, idolatry. They keep us focused on self rather than training our minds to think on things above. Break out of the dungeon of self and see beyond. There's, there's bigger things going on. Um, I, I, I remember years ago, uh, I joined Book of the Month Club. Did any of you ever do that in your life? You know, you, everybody seems to do it once, and then we never do it again. You know, pay off the books, and okay. But when I joined, they sent me a free book. And it was a small book, small enough that I thought, okay, I can read this. And it was um, Common Courtesy. Miss Manners solves a problem that baffled Mr. Jefferson. Do any of you remember Miss Manners, the etiquette columnist? Judith Martin was her name. She gave a speech at Harvard, and this was the speech she gave. She was the first person to lecture on etiquette at Harvard University since 1600s when Cotton Mather did. And here was her talk. Common courtesy, Miss Manners solves the problem that baffled Mr. Jefferson. Who's Mr. Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson. When America became a country, Jefferson was saying, okay, we're going to do an experiment. We're going to have an egalitarian culture. And different than Europe, where everybody knew where they were on the pecking order. You treated those above you in an honorable way. You treated those beneath you in a servile way. And everybody knew by accident of birth how they should be treated. And she said, now Jefferson was thinking, we're equal. We'll treat each other well. And what he discovered was people were going along saying, well, you're no better than I am. And we we're treating each other horribly. And he was trying to figure out how we were going to solve the problem. So Miss Manners said what ended up happening was we gravitated towards a new set of standards. Oh, you're wealthy. We'll treat you well. Oh, you're poor. Why don't you go sit over there? You know how James warns against that attitude. Uh, my wife is very beautiful. I married her because she was nearsighted. <laughs> Darkest day of our marriage was when she had LASIK surgery. <laughs> and when she was younger, when she was younger, she got pulled over by a cop because she was driving a little fast. And a policeman came up and said, Claudia Root, is there a Mr. Root? And he's trying to ask my wife out. And he let her go. He didn't give her a ticket. You know what happens to the bald, fat guy when he gets pulled over? I got a ticket once for doing 31 and a 30. I've got to drive carefully. I'm cooked. I have a friend. He has a Super Bowl ring from when he was a starting tight end for the San Francisco 49ers in the Joe Montana era. Keeps that Super Bowl ring in his pocket. Whenever he gets pulled over, and sometimes he puts the pedal to the metal, he looks at the rearview mirror, which side the cop's coming in, and he puts that ring on that finger, and when the cop asks for his license, he kind of goes like this. <laughs> the cop goes, is that a Super Bowl ring, Mr. Heller? What Super Bowl did you play in? And he says, well, I was in San Francisco, you know, John Monday. What was Ronnie Lott really like? Oh, here's a great guy, and you should have met 
Jerry Rice, boy, what a prince of a guy. And they talk about it, and the cop goes, um, can I get your autograph? It's for my son, you know. And he never gets a ticket. <laughs> and so we order it in different ways, but we really don't know how to treat one another. It's artificial. Contrary to the idolatry that focuses attention on self, there's only one way to have a proper etiquette. And it's the etiquette that we see exhibited on Calvary when the God of the universe, arms widespread, said, I offer my life for you. I offer my life for you. Break out of the dungeon of self in serving other people and entering into this mind of Christ, ministry that leads to intimacy with Christ and the image of God being restored in that process. I, I, I want to end with this last story then, because I always believe that there is going to be an evangelistic element to this, a mentoring element to this, discipleship. We're supposed to make disciples, but I have, I have people a lot of times they'll say to me, oh, I believe in discipling. I'm not an evangelist type person. I believe in, in discipling. I go, really? And you don't believe in evangelism so much, or it's not for you. Who are you discipling? You're depending on somebody else's work? No. Go lead people to Christ and learn the art of it. You can learn through experimentation. Find somebody who does it and have them mentor you. And enter into the joy of it. I don't, have any of you ever had a situation where you're talking to somebody and they're really warming up to the gospel and you say to them, well, would you like to trust Christ right now? And they say, yeah, I would. And you go, you would? You really would? You know, and it's, it's, there's something thrilling about it, you know, and sometimes it's a surprise to us, but that's okay. You stay engaged. Well, I was a youth pastor years ago, and I had this guy in my youth group, and his name was Doug, and I, I got to know him when he was just like a freshman in high school, and, and I loved going to see my students when they were doing different things, and he was at a high school. It was a few miles away. It was a little bit inconvenient, but he was a tennis player, and so I'd always make sure I got to a couple of his tennis matches each year. And then, and then he told me that he was concerned for one guy on the tennis team named Keith. And so we started praying for Keith. And there was a night when Doug brought Keith to the youth group. I can see it like it happens right now in my mind's eye. The meeting was over, and Doug and Keith and I went into the side room, and Doug had already been sharing with Keith. And I asked Keith if he had any questions, if it made sense to him. He had a couple questions. We were able to straighten some of those out for him. And I said, Keith, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? And he said, none. And I could have just jumped in and prayed with him and missed the opportunity. I said, Doug, you have been praying for him. You have been talking with him. Why don't you now usher him into a relationship with Christ? And Doug prayed with Keith. Doug, Doug went on to become a sheriff, L.A. County. And in all of his life, he would, in a trickle, lead people to Jesus. He was one of those 30 fruit guys. Keith, he went on to lead thousands of kids to Christ and started a youth uh, a ministry, and it was incredible. And the thing that blows my mind about it is that Doug was faithful. 
Little did he know in that moment it would give birth to a movement. You be faithful in the moment. Don't look beyond the moment, but be faithful in the moment. Guess what? I honored Doug today because I got word this morning that he died. Today. He died today. And I tell you about him because he was faithful. And I know what he heard when he got to glory. What I want each of us to hear, because we've set our minds on the things above. And we've been following him. Let's pray. Father, none of us are experts at these things. We're all neophytes. We're learners. We're people trying to grow and learn to do it better. Help us not to be dissuaded by our mistakes. Help us to learn from them. Help us in the maturation process to remember that it's a process. And help us to discover your presence going with us every step of the way. Make each of us people who would seek to remove by your grace the soul boogers in our lives. That we might walk with you more closely. Serving you. Serving others. And finding that we're becoming more intimate with you as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Tomorrow night, we'll have a Q&A time. Again, I don't know very much. I promise to stay in my lane. But um, you come tomorrow night and bring the questions. And, and if I don't know the answers, I'll ask John Hayward, the eminent uh, <laughs> professor emeritus from Wheaton College, who's here. And he'll be able to tell us all about it.